Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. This is the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the trends shaping the market today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. For several years now, we've been publishing every week the latest market data in our weekly Altos Research video series. With the Top of Mind podcast, we're looking to add context to the discussion about what's happening in the market from leaders in the industry. Each week, Altos Research tracks every home for sale in the country, all the pricing, all the supply and demand, all the changes in that data, and we make it available to you before you see it in the traditional channels. People desperately need to know what's happening in the housing market right now. The market was so frozen solid last year. It was surprisingly strong this spring. And now with mortgage rates, the landscape is changing again. So, you know, what happens next? If you need to communicate about the housing market to your clients, buyers and sellers, go to altosresearch.com and book a free consult with our team. We can look at the local market, your local market. We can help you communicate using market data in your business right now. Okay, speaking of communicating about the housing market, let's get to the show. I've got a great guest today, Lance Lambert. Lance is one of the best housing analysts on Twitter, for sure. He's a former data journalist at Bloomberg and Realtor.com, and he's now the real estate editor at Fortune Magazine, where he writes on the housing market prolifically. Uh, he does a ton of great work on local markets on Twitter. And, and so we're going to dive into local markets. We're going to talk about the future of the market. We've got a lot of things to, to really understand about what's happening in the housing market right now. So Lance, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Mike. And I'm a huge fan of yours and the data that you put out and the insights. And you know, one of the things that I really like about you is you tell it right how the data uh, shows you and you're not afraid to kind of break with what people are thinking at the time and you let the data lead you. And so, you know, for me, you're a tremendous resource too. And I really appreciate all the work that you do. Well, thank you. And I confess that sometimes I am afraid to break with the, <laughs> with what the other people are saying. But sometimes, you know, you just got to trust the data. And sometimes it's hard to trust the data because it says things you don't expect. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I talked a couple of weeks ago with KB Holmes CEO, uh, Jeffrey Metzner, and he, he said something interesting. And, you know, he's been the CEO there since 2006. So he's seen the boom there, that bust and the really slow recovery. But he said what marks the pandemic housing market is how fast the shifts have occurred both ways throughout this, whether it's March 2020 the recovery that summer in 2020 uh, with, you know, the rate shock in summer 2020, that direction. And then right off the bat, like day one this year, January 1st, like that shift that occurred. Uh, if anything, what we're seeing now is actually one of the few periods where it's kind of a little bit of a slower shift uh, versus those other four. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, before we dive into all that stuff, because we got lots to talk about there, give me a little bit of a background of how you got here. Um, you're a data journalist and, and really a great example of, of someone doing visualization and communicating with the data well. So give me some of your background and a little bit of your journey to how we got here right now where you, where you run 
the data for the the housing market for Fortune. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wanted to be uh, a, a financial journalist. I had studied journalism in school. I was also an econ grad. So that was kind of where I was aiming for. And I worked at Bloomberg for a while as a data journalist there. I ran all the flagship rankings for best business schools. So I'd fly out to Harvard and meet with their deans. I'd go to MIT and really was obsessed with business school stuff. Uh, but I kind of reached a point where I was thinking about leaving journalism and kind of becoming a data scientist. So I was taking a lot of data courses outside of work. And one of the things I thought would be smart was to do a pivot job to where I would still be a journalist, uh, a data journalist, but I would kind of get closer with like the data science teams and economics teams. And so I took a job at Realtor.com. I was a data journalist there and got to work close with, you know, their data collections teams, their team of economists. And I think at Realtor.com, just like going through housing data all the time, I just kind of fell in love with it in a way. It's interesting. It's geographical. Um, and, and it's kind of fun to like be able to learn to read it. And at times you'll think you've got it down and then there's curveballs and you have to kind of learn from it. Um, and so I left Realtor.com to go to Fortune Magazine, uh, where I was going to build Fortune Analytics, which was like a data newsletter for executives. And then I had some other stuff that I was doing. I built uh, a small business for them called Fortune Education, which is like a lead gen business. But the whole time, you know, the housing market was going through so much crazy stuff. And I was just really interested in it. Like my my tweets, all of this, this is just because I'm really interested in what's going on and to see a boom and then kind of be like, what's going to come after this and trying to like figure that out um, is really why I'm so sucked into it. You, you know, my dad, he had uh, started a business in the early 2000s, a home addition business, home, re uh, he would build either barns or like add bedrooms onto homes. And when the bust occurred, my dad's business didn't go down uh, like 50%. It went down 100%. There was just no, nobody was doing home additions once it started to slow. And his actually was completely gone by like into 06 or, or, or into 07, like even before the recession really occurred. And so to like have that firsthand seat. And then my mom and stepdad, they were home flippers. And that last flip they did they it took them nine months to sell it and they barely broke even, but a lot of their friends and stuff were flipping and they held on to them for like several years. Um, and uh, I think some of them actually foreclosed. So to have like watched that growing up is like I was in high school, just, you know, uh, kind of got me fascinated with, uh, you know, housing in a way too. Not that I was fascinated then, but it's as I got older and was playing with real estate data, I think it gets you, you, you see how the, what type of downside there could be. And I, I think that seeing ghost in a way, I think that plays out all the time in housing where, you know, even when I was talking to KB home CEO, uh, I asked him because now they're going out and they're buying more land. They already have the land for 2024, 2025. So they're out securing land for 2026. But last year when the market rolled over very quickly, they stopped buying and they were getting out of projects. 
And as you've seen things shift this year, they're now going out and they're, you know, acquiring more land, ramping everything up. Nothing's paused for them. And so I asked him, I was like, do you have any regrets? Like you could have been buying more land at better prices last year. And he's like, absolutely not. I've seen how fast this market can shift and what type of downside there can be. And he said also, you know, they've never had problems uh, acquiring land. Uh, and all the problems with land are when they get land that isn't the spots that they should have gotten and they have trouble offloading it. And, uh, and so I think even the, the highest people in, uh, the, uh, real estate world, you know, they kind of see ghosts from that period just cause it was, you know, I mean, it really was a housing depression, like six year depression and, you know, the industry is going to see ghosts because of it. And, you know, it made the industry more conservative, over the past 10 years in, in some ways that are bad. Yeah. So your parents were home flippers. How does that shape your view now? For example, like you said, there are ghosts of, of 2006 and eight in, in a lot of this market now. Do those ghosts, are they, do they show up in your work? Well, I, I think uh, when you see what happened in the end of 2020 and you see what happened in 2021, like all of that, like amateur jump into the housing market, like people buying the Airbnbs, people getting the rental properties, uh, oh, uh, bigger pockets, like just taking off. I think that to me was like, oh, I've kind of seen that part before. And so that's what was so interesting over the past few years, it's like at points I'm like, oh, you know, this, you know, there's some concerns here. But then you also it's like, uh, you know, that, you know, there isn't as much there wasn't as huge amount of like transaction volume. There wasn't the bad mortgage products. Even now, inventory is very tight. There's not a lot of existing resale inventory. So you kind of have to follow all the dynamics. But that part of it, like seeing that frenzied bit. That, that was kind of a red flag, having lived through it and seen it with like my parents, where they're like amateur home flippers. They both had day jobs, my mom and stepdad. And so for them uh, to have jumped in and doing flips, like that was kind of crazy. And then you look at my dad who, you know, quit his warehousing job to go build home additions. Well, that was only a part of that boom. And now that I actually understand the data, that was a part of the, uh, the cash out refi boom. That's what was really happening, I think. And that's where I think my dad was making his money is people were doing the cash out refis, doing the home additions. Wow. So uh, what market were they in doing the flipping and the additions? My whole family is pretty much the Cincinnati market, and that's where I live now. And uh, I was living in Manhattan, my wife and I and our three-year-old when COVID hit. And this isn't a joke. My, that first week of the lockdowns, I, I went down the elevator to Lee Fortune because they were like, you guys work from home the next two weeks. And I was like, I'm probably going to figure out how to take my job remote from this. Uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do really well, and I'm going to show I can do the job well, and then I'm going to take it remote. And th that's pretty much what I did. And I was driving around trying to find, like, spec homes for sale in Cincinnati, uh, like, during, like, April, May 2020. And I was the first person at Fortune to ask to take my job remote. Wow. Yeah. And so... It was very prescient of you also to be interested in buying a home in that moment, uh, like of the because it was yet not yet clear that the market was going to like explode like it did. 
Exactly. Yeah. It, yeah. It was kind of like my opportunity to get out and, uh, yeah, I just kind of jumped on it. And also another thing was I had a lease for a year in New York that I just signed. So I wanted a new construction to be completed by at least February, 2021. And that's why I was like kind of really jumping on it faster. I didn't know how great the timing was at the time. Um, you know, that part was interesting to watch unfold. But so that goes to one of my other theories that I've had, which is I believe personally that housing has played a huge role in the pandemic economy and then also the inflationary run. And so one theory that I have is that a lot of the people who were leaving Seattle, New York, like myself, San Francisco, L.A., and then buying these homes in other places, they needed a lot of stuff, right? So when I bought my home, I went ahead and immediately bought washer, dryer, fridge. I had nothing. I, like, I'm living in a tiny New York, Manhattan apartment. I needed everything. I had to go out to Amish country to buy like my kitchen table and stuff, which was going to take like nine months. Uh, the couches, everything. And I think that is what helped to gum up the supply chain in a way was the pandemic migration and that housing demand boom um, is one of my kind of theories that I have. Yeah, as you as you lived it. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah, having done it, and then and then when I was buying stuff for the house, like my sump pump, it went up like one hundred and fifty percent for sump pumps because there was just so much demand for them. Um, and so to kind of see stuff like that, and so I was in a rush to buy things because the prices were moving up so fast, and that was even before the home was done. That and that's when the economy still had like a seven eight percent unemployment rate. Um, that boom was occurring for all of those different goods. So you were feeling inflation way before it was showing up in the numbers. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And well, and you would see it in your data, of course, because the housing inflation data lags so far. And even the things like Case Shiller and stuff took so long to catch it up to it. I mean, really, it was off to the races right off the bat that summer of 2020. Yeah, we had we had three weeks of down market. We had five weeks until it had recovered totally from, from the, like the, that high point. It was, it was unbelievable. It was a five week correction and that was it. So speaking of that frame of, of that, you know, the living through with your family, the, the, the bubble burst, a lot of, a lot of, especially in the social media world that you and I publish into uh, there's a huge p- chunk of folks, very vocal, who are expecting bubble to burst now. And, you know, they home prices went up and it's very easy to imagine reversion to mean and so that they must come back down. And, and first of all, what's your view on, like, do you think prices must correct, will correct down? And and how is that colored by what you lived through in 2006, seven, eight? Nine ten. Yeah. So I think one thing that's really interesting is to look at the last three recessions. Uh, the first one, the early 2000s, uh, at that time, uh, we went into a recession, but housing actually started to boom. Rates had went lower. Home prices started to take off then in the early 2000s. And, uh, and then you have the 07 rollover which is, you know, essentially the biggest housing depression of the century for the U.S. And prices crashed, and it's like the only nominal price crash 
nationally since uh, the Great Depression. And, you know, really it's a huge historical outlier. And, and then you have the 2020, which is uh, we go into recession, but and rates drop and housing actually boomed. So of the past three recessions are three of the biggest outliers for housing in like 50, 60 years for recessions. Like they're very unique ones. They're not like the 70s, the 80s, which were very much like construction bust, but then prices held stable. Um, and so, I, you know, we don't have the things that we had in the 06, 07, 08 run up. We don't have the bad mortgage products. There, there wasn't a ton of people even today who are getting into the market at this deteriorated affordability, right? I think that actually matters for housing, that we have so low transactions at the point in the cycle where affordability is deteriorated. Last cycle when de affordability deteriorated, there were still a lot of transactions happening. It, and so a lot of people were getting in who were getting stressed. And, you know, the, the lending standards were very different then. Um, and then the, when unemployment broke, because it broke alongside a property bust, it was actually a very deep recession and lots of layoffs. And it, and it lingered for a long time, which is a huge pain point for housing and the economy. And so I, I, you know, I don't like to make any calls. You know, I try to stay away from that. I'm less, I see myself less as a housing analyst and more of like, you know, uh, some, somebody, a journalist who's very informed in the space and can ask like some of the tougher questions and also has some of that skepticism, which I think serves me well in both directions. Uh, but what I do think is that what if unemployment were to break, I think it would probably be different than either of those three stories. Uh, the 2020 boom and then 2000, 2000, like 2001, the affordability was in a much better place going into those, right? So that I think is the element that is different that'll keep maybe this from being like the, the boom that was the 2020 recession or 2000 recession. But then I also, it, it's not, it's not the 08 or 06, 07, 08, not, nine kind of lead up. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I really don't see that type of downside risk, even though affordability so deteriorated because existing and resale supply is so tight and it, things would have to change so quickly um, there. And they just haven't been like, I think it would be a little bit of a different story right now. If let's say, let's just assume and say we're heading for recession, right? Let's just say we are not necessarily that we are, but let's just assume we are. If we are, um, w what has not occurred in the lead up is active listings haven't shown meaningful growth, right? Like we got like the three, four months last year. And then since then, we've really tightened up and we haven't had that huge jump up uh, there. And so, it, yeah, so I, I know I'm not doing a great job of answering your question, but that's kind of how I see this one is it's different than the past three we've had. And it's also not like the 70s and 80s where it's like construction bust. Cause I, you know, we're not overbuilt for single family homes. Like I, you know, now there's arguments for like multi and like some sub markets, but nationally for single family homes, I think a lot of the evidence, unless you think that the vacancy rates are complete nonsense, um, you know, I, I think there's, 
a, a structural need. And so if we were to go into a downturn, I think what you could see is what we saw in the second half of last year, which is builders have these great margins. And so they do the, the cycle rolls over further on affordability. They just roll out more mortgage rate buy downs. They cut prices. They offer money at close because they still have the margins that if they need to go further, they could. Um, and so that's why I don't think it's like the 70s, 80s construction bus type setup either. Great. I think that's a terrific answer to the question. I appreciate that. Um, in there, you said uh, the skepticism serves you well on both sides. What is your skepticism right now telling you? What, what are you looking at that's maybe, you know, conventional wisdom or like you keep hearing this, but you're like, ah, I'm skeptical of that. Where's your where's that radar going off for you? Well, one of the things that I think could change, and, and so like let, let's look at Austin last year with Austin. The, the inventory and active listing numbers for Austin were bottom of the barrel for history of Austin. Like they were so low. But Austin, when the demand, when the demand shock occurred last year, they had some tick up in, act, in new listings a little bit, and it didn't last too long. But what you really saw is that days on market really shot up there. And so because the churn of homes stopped moving off the market as quickly, they were able to go from like that super bottom of the barrel, like 2,000 active listings to like 10,000 super fast, like they shot up. And a lot of that was just days on market, like normalizing. And then they, they went further than normalized. They kind of really, you know, shot up. So I think if there were a situation where days on market could move up very quickly, I think you could get breathing room on actives fairly fast, uh, given just how low days on market is. It's just not normalized. So I think that's one part where I'm like, I stay kind of alert there. I don't talk about it much, but I kind of think about it. Um, and then, but on the reverse side, it's like, okay, let's say downturn hits, mortgage rates fall. That's an affordability improvement. So that's kind of like that, you know, it's like, where would days on market actually go is one of the big questions for me. And then, but if it's a situation where days on market shot up really fast, really quickly, it could get more markets, I think, into like correction mode. Got it. So, uh, Austin is sort of the canary in the coal mine that that implies that the conventional wisdom is like we're kind of screwed on inventory for the a generation but austin shows us that if if buyers go from multiple bids to no bids on a house like we could indeed see that inventory story change quickly rather than taking multiple years yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's it. And it's well, and it's not like it throws us back to like the crazy high inventory levels of the past, but I think it could get us closer to pre-pandemic levels in some markets really quickly. And what we've seen there is the markets that have done that really quickly because affordability is also so deteriorated have softened up more on prices. And I think the issue for the bears is just uh, they haven't seen much of that. So many of the markets across the country have tightened up so much uh, for actives despite, uh, you know, affordability being so deteriorated. So I, I think how I see the market is there's a huge tailwind, which is very tight existing and resale inventory. And I think there's a huge headwind, which is deteriorated affordability. And so they clash. 
And because they are so, each such strong forces, that if the equilibrium moves one way or the other, I think it can move the market fairly quickly. Like I think that's what happened this year is we came into the year, resale and existing inventory was so tight. Yeah, affordability was deteriorated, but all it took was some buyers regaining confidence and the seasonality effect coming back. And I think that's what kind of bumped it up. And I think it's possible that right now we could be seeing the reverse of that, where for the second half of the year, the weaker seasonal period, this headwind is still there, despite how strong things were in many markets in the first half. And now that rates have kind of bumped up a little more alongside the seasonality, I think it kind of moves the equilibrium the other way. Um, and so it would be interesting to kind of see how the second half of this year plays out. And then if the economy is still in its strong place that we are now, does the other side of the market, that tight resale and existing inventory next spring, do the same thing and just kind of grab it back? Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate that uh, approach. Tell me about how you, um, tell me about your methodology for, you're like, you have a, you do it, publish a ton of data, use a lot of sources, uh, but tell me about like, what you do to to stay fully informed, to keep yourself fully informed? I, I talk to a lot of people and I usually like to talk to them for an hour. Um, and I think if I, now I haven't talked to you, but I also kind of watch your videos so I know where you're thinking. And that's what I try to do is I try to like understand where, how people interpret data. And once I kind of do that, I, you know, it, it builds for me. And the more that I can see how different people interpret things and what data they've collected, it's helped to shift how I look at housing. So one thing that I did in the spring of 2022, last spring, is I went to a lot of the uh, different economic groups like Moody's and uh, some of the other ones. And I got like their risk scores by market. And I just did a spreadsheet and I put them all in. And I just weighted them evenly across it. It did a standard deviation, weighted them evenly. And it told me that the most risky market in the country was Austin and Boise. And then it was Phoenix. And then it was Las Vegas and Reno. And so when absorption started to break last summer, and those were the markets that shot up very quickly for actives, it was like, okay, I think we're kind of seeing something play out correction-wise with these. So I, I think that was helpful and I think just going out and constantly trying to find more data because I'm just kind of interested in what's out there has kind of helped to inform me too. And I'm, and I'm always trying to like create new charts. And, and so like one that I rolled out this past month is the net profits of the 10 largest publicly traded builders in the country. And I think that chart's great because it shows just how high margins have stayed. And then coming into this year, they kind of cut into them a bit to kind of find the market, quote unquote. And then now, like <clears throat> in the middle of the year, those margins went back up a bit. And I think that what that tells us is if in the second half of this year, as things slow down further, builders, you know, because they raise prices a bit this first half of the year, they'll just cut into the profits, roll out bigger buy downs and, you know, get, get go find the market again if they need to. That's, uh, yeah, the, um, uh, so the risk scores that you looked at last year actually seemed to be precise in predicting the areas that had their most risk. 
None of them were precise standalone. But when I aggregated them all, that's when I got the good stuff. Yeah. So what it 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 so some of the risk ones like um, Core Logic's risk ones they didn't do as well with like the Boise's and Austins and stuff. But what Core Logic was great at was the West Coast, like the very high cost markets that have had those acute housing shortages for so long. Prices got so high, and so I think what it's always going to be now from Seattle down to San Diego, anytime rates move up quickly there's just more of a shock in those markets because prices are so high that people, there's an initial shock, right? And some of the data just didn't catch that. Like Moody's wasn't as great for the West Coast, but Moody's was great for the boom towns that had gotten really far beyond like their local fundamentals, like Austin, Boise, and some of the ones I mentioned. So, but once I aggregated them up, it was like, I kind of, I don't know, it, it, it just kind of matched closer to reality than any one of them by by itself. That's neat. Did, did have you done that risk analysis for this year? Looking at next year, do the markets change? I'm not as much. I'm kind of still sticking with what I've had, and I, I kind of still think the risk ones are probably still in that in that order of like the Austin boy, boy like the secondary markets uh, where local fundamentals have gotten distorted so far. And then if you have a slowdown in migration, that really puts those risk, those markets more at risk. Yes, right. The California people paying 150 grand over asking in Austin when rates are 3%, it's a couple hundred bucks a month. When it's when they're 7%, it's I don't do the deal. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that's it. And, and I think some of the West Coast markets were helped this year. Uh, by the fact that because they have such acute housing shortages, they just never got the active listing growth, I think is one of my theories. And then the other thing is, I think the stock rebound and some of the confidence regained in the tech sector, not a ton, but just enough, I think really helped uh, those markets. And, and if you go and look at the price data from 2018, while you didn't really see markets like San Francisco and San Jose get hit like they did in 2022, what you do see if you go look at that data is that those were some of the few places where prices sunk a little bit, like San Jose, San Francisco, Seattle, San Diego, like not a ton. They would get like just a couple month over month negative readings. But I think what it told us is that in a way, the rate shock we saw last year was just, it was kind of, and I, I, think, I, I think I've kind of heard you or Logan say this too, but it was kind of like the 2018 one on steroids. And so I, I think what it tells us now is if you ever get really strong rate shocks, you'll get an initial drop down in price in the very high cost Western markets. I, I, and, and a part of that is because not only are they rate sensitive because of the price Prices are so high, but because the sectors of the economy are also rate sensitive, I think that's that kind of explains it. At least that's how I kind of see it. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with that, that, that um, the rate shock gives us initial price cut. It gives us a days on market climb and therefore it gives us an inventory. So rates up, inventory up, rates down, demand is spurred, inventory down because we're buying more. Um, and I, I follow that pattern, I think, uh, similarly. So one question, we've been talking about the West Coast and the boom markets, but you're in Cincinnati. 
were you surprised at how Cincinnati and the the Central and the Northeast responded this year, especially uh, like, you know, when were you surprised by that? Um, I wasn't as surprised with the Midwest. I kind of, it, you know, the Northeast was kind of surprising because the prices are so high. Like the, the Midwestern one was, it kind of made sense because, you know, there's a, well, let me just say, it was interesting and surprising to see what overall has happened across the country, right? Like, and there's been a lot of resiliency, not even in the Midwest and, nor- and Northeast, you know, even a lot of these West Coast markets. Um, so to see how fast that resiliency came into effect, that was very interesting. But I think in general, like Columbus, Lexington, Cincinnati, uh, Indianapolis, Louisville, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, it, it wasn't surprising for me. And in a part of it's because I, I know so many people who live in like L.A. or New York or D.C. who moved home during the pandemic and like people are still moving home. Um, I have a colleague here. Uh, she moved from L.A. Uh, back into the Cincinnati area. Um, and, and so still kind of seeing that, too. So that firsthand experience and understanding that like the, the work from home arbitrage is still alive and well that didn't make the Midwest part for me too surprising. That was kind of understandable. Now, what's been interesting to see is how much of that has occurred across the country in different ways. And so what I mean by that is what you've seen happen because affordability has become so deteriorated, you've seen people shift expectations to give themselves an affordability improvement. And what I mean by that is, People looking at other cities like Midwest, uh, Northeast, uh, and when I say Northeast, I'm talking about like Syracuse, Rochester, uh, Harrisburg, those types of places. And then you've also seen people move down the ladder, like get a smaller home, uh, move further out, making expectation shifts that have translated into the top end of the market being much colder than the bottom half of the market right now. Like entry level homes, like even in like San Francisco and Seattle, the Zillow data shows that San Francisco in the bottom third of the market is only down 4%. And in Seattle, it's only down 1%. And in the top third of both of those markets are down at least 10% still in the Zillow data. And so I, I think those affordability improvements because affordability has deteriorated so fast so quickly um, it has been interesting to see. And then also the builders now are shifting more to like smaller homes. And a lot of people have went to new construction because they're one of the few places in town that'll give mortgage rate buy downs, that'll give money at close, that'll throw those incentives in. So the because affordability is so deteriorated, the buyer is like desperately seeking it out. And all of the places that have relative affordability they've seen much stronger and resiliency on the price side. I think it's uh, I think it is under publicized how the builders have had the power with mortgage rates this year. And that's really been a catalyst for buying new construction. Like it can be significantly cheaper if they're going to buy down the rate to the fives. Suddenly that's a, that is a, uh, a lot cheaper per for, for that monthly payment. I think it's been under under noted. And, and that one actually matters for the economy 
you know, that's why I love that builder profit chart that I've just made. Because, you know, the fact that the builders can set their own rate environment, like Jerome Powell can set his, but then they can set theirs, um, is it, kind of been fascinating to see. And maybe that's like prolonging the cycle. It, I don't know. It, it's interesting. But you're also seeing that to some degree in the auto sector where they're another rate sensitive part of the market, but they can do affordability adjustments. And their profits have also skyrocketed to like crazy levels because of the uh, just what we saw during the pandemic and that huge uh, mismatch between demand and supply. Neat. That's a that's a great parallel. Uh, let's let's uh, talk about. Um, so you talked about the charts you were building, and 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 I noticed you do a, a very excellent visualization, data visualization. Do you have? Uh, you have rules or tips that you can like for communicating with the data that you you could teach me? You know, I just have a lot of fun with the, the charts. Um, one thing I do think that people like is they like the charts to change, like to look at it in different ways. And, um, you know, which can sometimes be bad for economics because economics like these are the things that matter. These are the, the charts that we should be looking at. Uh, we don't always need to get so fancy. And so there's kind of that hesitancy to be, you know, like, let's just stick to the core. We know what the core is telling us. But I think people do like it to be changed. Um, and that's one thing I try to do is I'm kind of like trying to always hunt for like different things and different ways to look at things um, and finding ways to quantify them. And then I think one thing that's important is like when you find the things that do matter that are maybe unique to like the cycle in the moment, like to just keep going back to those. So one thing I, I like to go back to now is like that inventory map that I have comparing the given month versus the same month in 2019. And it's usually down like 40, 50% across the whole country, but you see those parts of the Mountain West and some softness in like Nashville and of course Austin, which is back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, but I keep going back to that chart because it's, it's so true. The places that had saw more of the price growth in the first half of the year were those places with very little active listing. And one of the few markets that's kind of still in that correction mode is Austin, which just so happens to be the one that's back to pre-pandemic inventory levels. Yeah, I, it's so funny that Austin by itself is, is really an outlier there in terms of pre-pandemic levels of inventory, of prices correction off the peak, although still up, you know, from 2019 or 2020 even by a lot, home prices in Austin. So I, I think one of the things with Austin, it, so one of the things that we see a lot for us, because we deal with like people who were like very bearish on housing all the time, and we interact a lot with them, is they're always like throwing out these different theories, right? And I think Austin is one of the places where some of the things they were saying in like, 2021 to 2022 about like investors getting over their skis and that type of stuff. I think it was true in Austin. It, it just wasn't as much everywhere else. And so when I've done some of my own reporting on Austin, what I've come in, come across is some investors who were buying properties that didn't cash flow and they were buying them because Austin home prices for the past, not just the pandemic, the past 10 years, Austin home prices boomed. Like this is not like a new thing. Austin has been booming. 
and they were buying homes because they they knew appreci- they thought appreciation would continue to soar. So they're like, I'm going to take a loss on the monthly, but I'm going to get the appreciation. And that's that's how you get caught. That's like the bad risk that gets put into the market. And so that was going on. Plus, Austin is one of the places where builders can build a lot and they can sprawl. And so that speculation on the investor side, coupled with the the supply in the new construction market and the fact that builders very quickly in Austin cut prices a lot. Some of the prices in Austin on new construction went down 20, 25 percent. Like there was some real cuts and that puts the existing resale market at a disadvantage. And when you have a lot of the investors who are kind of bleeding and you've taken away the appreciation from them, uh, that, that kind of puts you in a place where, where it takes time for the market to kind of work through it. Um, and not to mention, an important part for Austin is that the local fundamentals got distorted so quickly by the influx of people coming outside of the market. And so once those buyers pulled back, once the inflow of the new ones, then Austin finally had trouble with its fundamentals. So I, I think Austin getting to this point isn't only about the pandemic. It kind of precedes it a bit. Mm-hmm. That's a great that's a great observation. San Franciscans have been moving to Austin for a decade. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't mean anything negative towards Austin. I, I think I've tweeted this before. Sometimes the markets that do go through corrections, and even this predates uh, the mid-2000s one, sometimes those are the markets that have the best outlooks and the best futures. And investors know that. And that's why they got over their skis is they're chasing that future growth. And so this is just something that Austin will have to go through. And, and we are also, it looks like, at least for now, assume all else equal, nothing changes dramatically in the economic landscape. The, the worst of it has been over for Austin. The worst was the second half of last year when it was kind of in that flash crash mode. And then now we're kind of getting, um, we're now starting to see more month over month declines in the seasonal second half. But they're not like huge ones for Austin in the repeat indexes that I track. Um, of course, you know, the economy hits the shit hits the fan. Things can change. But I'm just saying based on what we're seeing now, the, the biggest drop for Austin was the second half of last year. Uh, I absolutely agree with that. The, big, the biggest change was, was last year, uh, though I can see in the last few weeks, uh, as rates have gone from 7 to 7.5%, we can see things like price cuts and days of market climbing in Austin. Austin's back to the top of the list in terms of the, the, the greatest percentage of the market that has had price cuts. Uh, and, and that's really in the last you know, handful of weeks as rates surged again late summer. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing weakness in like the repeat ones that I see. And you're kind of ahead, so I'm sure I'm going to see even more weakness. Uh, but what I mean there is last year... What happened in the second half of of last year in Austin, they gave up prices as fast as we gave up in the second half of 08 nationally, like the, in the repeat sales indexes. They were giving up 2 3% a month for a little bit, like just briefly. It was like a flash crash type thing. Um, so, yeah, even if they're getting like some negatives now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're back to what that what happened there. 
That's a fair, solid, solid take on Austin. And you mentioned the outlook, like the long-term outlook. And obviously, uh, Austin's a growth economy. Like there's a lot of still attractiveness about the inbound migration there. Um, what? Give me your the rest of your outlook, other markets or the country as a whole. What are you thinking next year and beyond? What do you see in the data? Uh, well, I, I think one thing uh, that we've seen so far is that affordability has not improved. Um, it, affordability is in a very tight spot. And the longer that affordability is this deteriorated, the primary concern is going to be f- affordability. And so I think that uh, as long as we stay here and the economy doesn't take a really bad turn, I, I think it means that more people will be chasing some of the relatively more affordable markets uh, like the Columbuses, like the Louisville's, the Indianapolis's. Um, so I, I think in a way I'm kind of bullish on the Midwest um, in some of those markets. And, and uh, you know, an interesting one is Florida on the other side where they saw the first affordability shock, which was overheated price growth in 2020 through 2022, and they even added some more this spring. And they also saw the second affordability shock, which was mortgage rates going from three, four, five, six, seven, that everybody saw. But now what they're also starting to see is a third affordability shock, which is a unique one, and that's these insurance shocks. Um, and so that'll be interesting to kind of see how that plays out, uh, because now, you know, you know, affordability isn't one of Florida's great selling points right now. And that was one of its selling points. No income state. You know, they have a lot of new construction, more affordable than some of these northeast markets. Now, you know, the math has kind of changed a bit and, you know, the, you know, the boomer wave can only last so long. So uh, I, I think Florida's Florida on the downside risk and then the Midwest um, more on the upside. Great. I love that. That as a as a general call, that's a I love that insight. The, the question I have is, is unaffordability durable? Is it can we be chronically unaffordable? Or does does unaffordability imply that home prices at some point have to correct back so that they are affordable to enough people? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's hard rules here. People show the fundamentals, the the averages through time, and they use that as like the baseline for fundamentals, and you know that can change. Um, you look at Canada where they've kind of went up and set a whole new bound (laughs) for deteriorated affordability. They're off the charts. And I think that's the thing if you were to ask me the thing that keeps me up at night, it's not necessarily like really bad downside risk. It's that affordability moves into a place that's even worse than now because now isn't great. (laughs) And if it moves into a place that's even worse than this, that that's concerning. And, um, yeah, so I, I think that's the part that's kind of like, ugh, you know, you know, because some of these countries that have been got ahead of us, like more deteriorated than us, 
like we are now where they were like several years ago, like we've caught up to them. And then they themselves have went up and set new, new, new levels of unaffordable. Um, so that's a bit of a concern. And you would hope that because the builders are in a good place uh, and they are feeling more confident, they still have these high margins that we can continue and maybe even get higher on, you know, construction and kind of stay in a good place there. Because I think at the end of the day, that's what alleviates the fundamentals over time uh, and puts us in a place to where we can correct in like an inflation adjusted basis. Yeah, I think that's a really uh, terrific insight where in the sense of where you always fight the last war, you know, the worry about the housing market is that home prices are going to crash like they did in 2008, you know, that we're in a bubble and therefore home prices have to crash down. But the real crisis we're facing is, an, is a supply crisis, and therefore the, the, the thing we should be worrying about is prices not falling. It's, it's prices and affordability getting worse from here, like they have in a lot of other countries. I mean, I don't know about your data, but the data that I track, there's markets up. And in, in these indexes, it's rare for this to happen, but there's a lot of markets up 8% in the first six months of the year. Like... Uh, like that, that's not good. Um, now, if you have a second half of the year where they're softening and seasonality comes into play and we blow off like a third of that, okay, that's a little more reasonable. But in some of those markets that are up eight, let's say they fall, let's say they knock off three, they're still up five. Inflation's not 5% this year. Like that would mean on a real basis, those markets saw a growth. And it's like, we're not so. Okay, it's one thing for prices to not fall much on a nominal basis, but if we're not even going to give up on a real basis and we're going to get even worse there, like that's that's kind of that's concerning. Yeah, and that absolutely is in our data in in some of those markets. Like you can see surprising strength, and you can see it. Like we've been talking a lot about the builders. You know, the builders had have had an outstanding year. Like who knew that was coming, right? Like you know, I think a year ago. When we were right in this moment when we had more rates were starting to to spike again and and then we watched inventory climb and we watched de demand drop really really quickly um and uh and so then we rolled into the fourth quarter and it was like like looking at this year being a big down year or, or a slight down year for home prices, watching inventory build, and none of those things came happened. Well, so one of the, the theses that was out there for why prices could fall more this time was because builders had such big margins that if they needed to, they like builders were always going to find the market this time. They were going to find the market, but it was a question of how much they were going to need to cut to find it. And they had huge margins to do it. But what happened is coming into this year, because existing and resale was so tight, they didn't have to really give up all of those margins they had accumulated during the pandemic. And so because they didn't fall as far, that meant that resale and existing wasn't put at the biggest, the bigger disadvantage they could have been. Like had builders cut as much as their margins would have allowed, the resale and existing inventory this or the resale and existing market this year would have been at an even bigger affordability gap between it and new construction. And that's where you probably could have seen the existing market give up more 
Um, but you saw kind of the reverse where existing and resale supply stayed so tight, builders were just able to meet that market faster than was expected and didn't have to cut prices as far. Yeah, that, so the builders sort of helped keep a floor on the market this year. Uh, and And one of the questions I had coming into the year was, you know, would investors, if investors stopped, would they would they exacerbate a downturn, or would they come in and see, wow, we've got home prices in Austin, or they're down? I have opportunity for the first time in years, or or Phoenix is even a better example. And do the investors come in? Do, do the investors exacerbate a downturn, or do they put a floor in because they want to? It's like all of a sudden their numbers work out again. Um, and I think what we observed in most markets is that the, the investors put a floor in the market. They were willing to buy as soon as there was any price correction in there. The, the mom and pop types more so, right? Is that, is that what you'd see? That's what I've seen more of, yeah, especially for like the Phoenix. On the, the institutional side, they're still kind of gummed up right now. Now they are kind of out there playing and they're trying to raise money and stuff. But it's definitely more of a constrained market and like taking a breather. And a part of that is because cap rates are just so out of whack. Um, prices have gotten so high. Rent growth is slowed. And these interest rates that they're taking on are sometimes 8, 9, 10% almost uh, on that, in that space. So it, it's, you know, it's just not, um, it, it's not the, they're all, that market is all about yields. That's why those institutional investors go and they'll, you know, or investors will put money with these institutional firms as they're trying to chase yields and the yields just aren't as attractive at the moment. The mom and pop people, this is more of like a business for them. Like they're trying to build this as like a retirement. They're like focused on this. They're trying to accumulate the rentals and they're less of like, oh, I can get this yield in the bond market. Why would I buy a home? They they think less like that, whereas the institutional guys, they do. Um, and, and, you know, and that, that one guy on YouTube, Nick, is it Jurley? Jur, Jur, like the, the like professional housing market bear, that guy? Yeah, and he's raised that point uh, last year, which is that uh, it doesn't make financial sense to invest in homes right now. Because, well, you could go get a 5% return in the bond market, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, he's right in a way that the institutional people think like that. But like the mom and pop people, they just that's just not how they think. They don't. Well, that guy's been wrong for a decade. So, you know, <laughs> like he, he's been calling for a housing market crash for a decade. So, well, yeah, it, 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 yeah. And he was very bearish even from the onset of the COVID taking off. Um, and, and, you know, last year, I, I definitely got concerned uh, to, at, once it became clear how much prices had moved up in the first half of 2022. And then once it became clear how acute that rate shock was going to be. And I, I think, you know, the math just going from three to six and then once we push seven is bigger jump than it sounds like if you actually do the math. So that's where... You know, it was definitely way more concerned then. Plus, there was the idea that maybe, you know, the economy could roll over faster than it has, uh, which we haven't quite seen that, at least as of September 2023.
Yeah. So then, that, then I can't believe we're almost at an hour already, but let me ask you how to kind of wrap it up. So you, you got pretty bearish mid-year last year. We could see the, we saw the run up and we saw the, the change in, in, um, in the, the demands happening very abruptly. Um, where are you now? Well, yeah. So I would put myself then as concerned, like uh, uh, watching concerned, knowing how fast affordability was deteriorating and trying to see how that would play out. Uh, less bearish in terms of like, I know how it's going to play out. I think I would even kind of say, like, I don't exactly know how this is all going to unfold. And it's been fun to watch it in real time to figure out, okay, here, why is the new construction market getting so resilient so quickly and following it and trying to get the charts for it. Um, and, and, you know, outlook wise, um, I don't necessarily have uh, an, an outlook uh, on where home prices are going, where, you know, the market is going to be in 12 months from now, 24 months. But what I do think will probably be true is that affordability is going to remain uh, fairly deteriorated in where kind of where we are in the bounds now. Like, yeah, rates could improve some and we could get some let up, but affordability is going to be a very big concern. And the other thing is the existing side of the market on the churn is just going to be gummed up for a while. Like we're not like it would be really hard to see us moving back to existing home sales levels that we saw during the pandemic anytime soon, uh, just based on where we are right now. But if the affordability market, the affordability side of the market were to give, you could see the existing side move, move more. Um, and, and, and we haven't seen it. And instead, we've actually seen affordability deteriorate further this August and September. And it looks like the existing side of the market is even going to get more constrained um, as a result. I tend to agree with you. It, uh, it seems like the signals now, if rates fall, we will improve affordability, but we'll stimulate demand a lot. And therefore, we're going to like not we're going to drive prices up because we already have supply super super constrained now my one question there which goes back to one of the the things that i think about one of the concerns is like okay yes affordability improves if rates decline but it's like if on the other side of the and if there's anything that could happen that would drive rates down that also means days on market moves up like depending on what type of recession it is, that's one of the play. And, and because affordability is so deteriorated and if rates move down to six, OK, that's nice. But depending on where the economy is, then, you know, that could maybe be a bit of a different story. So that that but, you know, what I'm trying to do now is that's actually one of the things I'm most interested in is getting different people's views on how the market would the housing market would react if we actually get into a downturn. Yeah, uh, great. Well, I look forward to that that uh, uh, journalism from you, that reporting from you on how the market would react to a recession. Like I've only lived through a handful of recessions myself, right? Like, And so I'm really, really, uh, and there's certainly nothing in, in the data yet that indicates 
how housing will react to the to the recession. But but I also don't study consumer spending and household formation and like all these macro things that that will drive that that are related to housing. I'm just I'm just tracking the housing. Yeah. Well, and and that's why I brought up the last three examples because they were literally opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what happened to housing. I mean, two of those were straight up booms. And then one, of course, uh, the, you know, historic nationwide bust. Uh, so so it, it'll be interesting to kind of see where the market goes from here. And can, can we get any more balance? Like is, you know, are we going to get some active listing growth at the end of the year uh, with, you know, affordability being so deteriorated or are we kind of like, stuck in this uh this bound uh, so i i think that'll be interesting to see and you know the guy that italis is you uh each week with this data so i'll be keeping a close eye well i can tell you we're recording september 8th this will be out in a, a couple of weeks but but um it's uh friday afternoon now we'll get our weekly data it's just starting to come in and inventory has been growing late in the year uh, as rates have risen, so like that is following right along with your your observations uh, in uh, Austin and other places, right? Um, but uh, but in the we peaked at about seven and a half percent, and last couple of weeks ticking down a little bit, and it looks like inventory maybe maybe peaked for the year now, um, but and unless there's another surge, and I was talking with uh, Dr. Jessica Lots from. NAR today for another podcast. And she's, you know, is talking about signals that, you know, what if we see 8% mortgage rates? Like, are those coming? And, and, and in that sense, I would see, I, I could see us having even later in the year inventory build. Not yet in the data, though. You know, one of the things that I think now hurt the market is that I think last year people were too quick because they had the 08 ghost plane and they saw the market slow down quickly. I think some of the sellers cut prices and sold faster than maybe they had to, right? And had they been more like, I'm sticking to this price, I'm going to wait it out, that might have helped. Well, that would have, A, seen less prices decline, but it might have helped days on market and inventory climb up more last year and get us in a little bit more of a balance. But instead, they cut the prices, that inventory moved quicker, and it, you know we just entered this year at too low of a place. Uh, all right, Lance, this has been terrific. I really appreciate your insight and your process. And, and uh, I know you said you, you like to be a reporter, less of an analyst, but I appreciate your analysis very much. Uh, it's it's useful to me to me to to hear your approach and your methodology. Um, so this has been exactly what I like to get out of these kind of conversations. So thank you so much. Where can our listeners and viewers where do they should they find you? Yeah, uh, where they can find me is at News Lambert on Twitter or at News Lambert on Threads. Uh, they can Google Lance Lambert in Google and they'll find my author page. I also go on uh, Mike, Michael Zuber's One Rental at a Time pod, uh, YouTube channel every week on Thursday. They can find me there. And one of the other reasons that I don't like to necessarily make more calls or have very vocal stances is, you know, one of the needs that I think that I've filled over the past like year and a half or two is like there's so much great housing data and research and great experts in the field 
that I kind of like to be one of the places where I like put out those forecasts and like share more of it. And I feel like if I have like very entrenched views on everything, I can, I feel less of that need. And I think having Lance Lambert housing analyst is less valuable than like having this resource where I present like all is as much of the analysis and forecasts as I can. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. And I, you know, it's, my approach is like, I'm just trying to report on the data. We collect the data, we report on the data. And I sometimes have views of, you know, what the data means. Uh, but really, it's like, I'll change my view if the data is changing. Yeah. Yep. And, I, and I've seen you do that in real time on many occasions. Great. Uh, Lance, thank you so much. Everybody, this is the Top of Mind podcast from Altos Research. And we will be back with more data and... Uh, another interview. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate leaving a nice review on your favorite podcast app. That helps other people find us as well. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes.